So how did we get here? God made these promises. And we see in our text today that a promise was made in the midst of a time which was very troubling. Our text can be summed up like this. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Here's the summary. The only hope for people suffering from disaster after disaster, both physically and spiritually, is a God who will destroy their enemies and a Prince of Peace who is coming. The message from our text for us today is that only this Prince of Peace, only this King Jesus can provide you with lasting peace where you need it most, which is peace with God. Now, who was this Isaiah? If you look in your Bible at Isaiah, it's a, it's a huge book. It's one of the largest books in the entire Bible. It's longest prophecy. And, and it's just one of those, you know, sort of like a mountain right there in the middle of the Bible. And we go to Isaiah, and sometimes we think, I'll never understand this book. But basically, Isaiah, to understand who he is, he was a prophet who wrote during the time of the divided kingdom. So after uh, Moses led the, the, the children of Israel out of Egypt, they, they wandered around for 40 years, they went into the promised land, then they had a time where judges ruled over them, and then they wanted a king. And so you had a king, you had the first king was who? Saul. And then the second king was David, and his son was Solomon. And so they ruled long reigns of 40 years of peace. And then after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. And ten tribes in the north broke off from the two tribes remaining, Judah and Benjamin, in the south. And they sort of had like a north and south kind of thing like our country did back in the 1860s. And so you had the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and you had the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And so Isaiah was living in Judah, and he was prophesying during the time when the kingdom was divided. And so sometimes when the kingdom, after it divided, sometimes they would get along. Israel and Judah would get along, and sometimes they would fight with one another. And all this depended upon different alliances. Were they making an alliance with this neighbor or with this neighbor? But Israel came to a point where they wanted, uh, they teamed up with Syria, and they wanted to come down to Judah, these two tribes in the south, and they wanted Judah to fight with them against the Assyrian Empire. Of course, the Assyrians would kind of go up that fertile crescent, and they would come down, and they would, they would come after those, those ten tribes in the north. And so those ten tribes in the north went to the two tribes in the south, and they said, help us and help Syria as we fight against the Assyrians. And Judah was reluctant. And so Israel and Syria invaded Judah, and they devastated them. They killed tens of thousands of their people. And they were devastated after the, after the destruction of that invasion and that terrorism. And their king was a king named Ahaz, and he was a terrible, terrible man, terrible king. But the Lord told Isaiah, he said, and this is in Isaiah chapter 7, he said, go tell King Ahaz, don't be afraid of Israel and Syria. Even though they're attacking you and they're destroying you and they're terrorizing you because they want you to fight with them against their enemy, don't be afraid of them because I'm going to destroy them. Isaiah told Ahaz, this evil king, 
he went to this evil king and he said, Ahaz, trust in the Lord. And he said, you can ask God for a sign that you can trust him. And Ahaz said, I don't want to ask for a sign. I'm not going to do that. And it sounds like, oh, I'm not going to put God to the test. Well, Ahaz, you're a good person. He didn't want God to give him a sign because he didn't want to have to believe it. He didn't want to have to trust in the Lord. You know, a lot of people don't want to hear the truth because, like I said earlier, once you hear the truth, what is the deal? You're on the hook for it. If you're told to trust in God and God shows himself to you and proves himself to be trustworthy and righteous, then you're on the hook to surrender to him. And a lot of people just don't want to deal with that. And that's why they stay away and they keep the church and they keep Christians at an arm length. Ahaz was like that. He didn't want a sign. And Isaiah said, well, you're going to get a sign anyway. A virgin is going to conceive and have a child. Now, what does that mean? What happened? Some people think perhaps after that prophecy was given, perhaps a virgin could mean one who's never had relations with a man, or it could just mean young girl. Probably scholars suggest that in the, in the, the royal household, that after that prophecy was made, somebody conceived. You know, there's, every prophecy has a near meaning and a far meaning. And the prophecy, a virgin will conceive and have a son, we understand in Mary's case, she was actually a virgin. And so the near promise was that a young girl or a virgin will conceive and have a child. That's going to be the sign that you can trust what I'm saying to you, that you need to trust Ahaz, you need to trust in the Lord and not be afraid of Israel, and don't be afraid of Syria, because they are going to be destroyed before that child who is born is eating solid food. Your enemies are going to be destroyed. That was the promise Ahaz had, that he could trust in the Lord to protect him. But you know what he did instead? He made an alliance with the king of Assyria. He went to Israel's enemy and said, I'll help you instead, and here's all the gold and silver from the temple. And so after he did that, Isaiah had to come back, and he had the sad job of telling the people of Judah that they were suffering from wars. They were suffering because they had a bad king. And even though times were tough because they'd had to give all their tax and their tribute to the king of Assyria, times were going to get worse. But in all this bad news in chapters 7, 8, 9, and so on, in in the midst of all this bad news, there are glimpses of hope. There are glimpses of what's going to happen after the suffering, after the dark of night. There is going to be a dawn for God's people who had suffered so much. And it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy for those people that were near to that situation that there was going to be a hope and a future for them But it's also a promise to all of God's people that a Messiah is coming. There was a near meaning to all those prophecies that had to deal with those people in that time right there. But these prophecies also have a far meaning. And the far meaning for us is what I'm interested in today. That whenever the Bible says, a virgin will conceive and bear a child, what happened in the Gospels? uh, As we read in the story of Matthew and Luke, what happens? There's a woman, a young girl, Mary, probably just a teenage girl. She's, she's betrothed to Mary Joseph, but they're not yet married, and she becomes with child. And that's a sign to us, based upon this prophecy that we read here in the book of Isaiah, that Jesus is that promised one, that Jesus is that Messiah. 
In the midst of darkness, even for Mary and her people, in the midst of Roman oppression, here is a point of hope. Here comes the King. And that day that Jesus is born is described for us in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, as a day of joy. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, a day of joy is described. Let's take a look at it. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. For God's people, there would be no gloom. Even though they were in anguish, their gloom would be taken away. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's talking about the very northern tribes. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now that's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Where did Jesus do his ministry? He 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 would go to Jerusalem, but then where would he go back home? Up to the north. Now these, this area in the north, these people who had rebelled against God, now the Bible tells us that way is going to be made glorious. Why? Because God himself was going to be walking around in the north in that part of Israel. How could this be? How could we come into this wonderful time? No more suffering, no more gloom, no more anguish, no more contempt. The land will be glorious. It will be a day so happy and glorious for God's people because God is walking with them, walking through Samaria, walking through Galilee, walking up to Jerusalem. It's also described as a a day of great light and of great security. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the enemy, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken it as on the day of Midian. That's talking about the victory that Gideon had over the Midianites. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Imagine if you were a suffering person, if you were suffering even generational consequences because of your forefathers not trusting in the Lord. Imagine the hope that these words would inspire. Imagine if the last time you heard from God and the last time a prophet had walked among your people was 400 years ago. And you're reading these words and you're being reminded constantly One day, one day we will see this day of gladness. One day we will experience this day of joy. Everyone who read that, and even us reading that now, when we read about joy and we read about peace and we read about God destroying enemies, what will we all say? I want to see that day. We've been watching the news about all the things that are going on in the Middle East, and don't we long for peace? And we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Can you imagine a day where there will be nobody fighting over there? That day will come. And I can say to myself, I want to see that day. I want to see that light. Have you ever looked for light? I've given this illustration before. I've told this story before, I think. 
And it's the weirdest story, and I wish Melissa was in here to uh, verify this. And she, you, can, you can ask her about it later. But one day, uh, we, we went down for a weekend to Alpine. Do you all know where Alpine is? Alpine is way out there. Alpine's like the farthest you can go. I think if you went out there, it's like foreign missions. Uh, way, way far away. We went to Alpine for a possible job interview with a law firm that was there. And while we were there, we decided that we would go see if we could see the Marfa Lights. Has anybody ever heard of the Marfa Lights? Raise your hand. Okay, not very many of you. Well, there's this place out in West Texas where it is said that even before there were automobiles or, or lights or even people that were out there, it is said that there were these lights that you could go out there and see in this one particular place, and nobody knows what they are. Now, some people say, oh, it's a, re- a refraction of the sun. It's, uh, there's a highway coming back here, and so you're just seeing headlights. And so, but, but it's kind of a fun thing, and they've built this gigantic viewing area. Has anybody actually been there? To see the marvel, okay. All right, a few people in the back. All right, so the road, the road dogs back there. Y'all are the road warriors. <clears throat> took a took a trip to go see these imaginary lights, right? Uh, so we went out there, and I did not think any that big a deal, other than let's go see the Marfa lights, and let's go into Marfa because that's where they filmed the James Dean Elizabeth Taylor movie Giant. Rock Hudson was in that movie. And I didn't know if you could maybe still see part of the structure that was standing there for the Riata, but you can't. You can't. So but we went down there to see this viewing area. It got dark, and we're standing there. And sure enough, while we're standing there at the viewing area, here comes a light way off over here. And it just kind of dances and spins around and comes up kind of where we are and goes back. And you would see it for a minute, and then it would disappear, and then you'd see it over here again. And, I, and I'm saying to Melissa, are, are you seeing this light? Well, we were looking. We were looking so hard to see this light. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? And uh, then we, we, we were amazed. That's amazing. That's got to be a, a, a mirage. That's got to be an illusion. And then we got into her 1996 Mitsubishi Eclipse. It was a great car. Except the stereo got stolen out of it so many times, we just, we just wound up leaving the doors open. Uh, and then it got stolen again, and we just left it. So like, we didn't have a radio in there. But here, here we're, we're driving in the Eclipse. We got in the Eclipse to go, and I am not kidding you. And y'all are going to think I'm crazy, and I am not crazy. I mean, I am a little bit, but I'm telling you, you're going to think I'm lying, but I'm telling you the truth. And Melissa experienced this too. While we got in that car and started heading to Marfa, that light followed us. And it was just going right along the side of us out here. I can't explain it. I know it seems crazy, but it was like a little fairy or something. It was the craziest thing I think I've ever seen in my life, that light. And we were laughing, and we couldn't believe it. Like, what is happening here? Why why is this light following us? And it followed us for about 10 miles, and then it finally disappeared. And I don't know, you know, I, I, I can't explain it. It was just so odd. But I can tell you this, that I went out there longing to see a Marfa light, and I got a dose of it. And I probably have the best Marfa light story. Did y'all see the lights? They didn't even see them. I got chased by a Marfa light, okay? <laughs> and sometimes they say people go out there and you see them, and sometimes people say they don't see them. But I had one chase my car. And, but I wanted to see those lights. 
I, and, I, and I, we went a long way off the beaten path to go see those lights. But imagine looking for the Messiah. Here's what's even better than having a Marfa light chase your Mitsubishi Eclipse. Is that imagine you want to experience that day of the Lord. You want to experience when the Messiah comes. And can you imagine actually being there when it happened? Can you imagine how joyous uh, and wonderful that day would have been? You know, we can kind of see that whenever they take baby Jesus a few days after he's born into the temple and Anna and Simeon are there. And we can see these people who've been longing their whole lives to see the Messiah. And here he is. Here he is. And I know we're over almost 2,000 years removed from that. But today, can you maybe get a glimpse of what that joy would have been like to see that light? Much better than a Marfa light. To see the light of Christ and to see that day. To see that day. As it says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in land of deep darkness, a light has shone on them. In verse 4, they're rejoicing, not just because of the light, but because when the light shows up, their enemy is defeated. Now, what is that enemy? Well, for those Israelites, their enemy would be those who would conquer them and those who would oppress them. But in a larger sense, what is all of our true enemy? What is the enemy that no one can escape? Death. Death. And yet here comes this great light into the world to conquer our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. The oppression of sin and death are broken by the work of Christ on the cross and in His resurrection. And so for those of us in Christ, verses 1-5 through should describe every single day of our life. I was walking in darkness. I've seen a great light. And that great light came and it destroyed my greatest enemies and I am rejoicing and every day is a day of great joy because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And when I'm feeling defeated, when I'm feeling discouraged, when I'm feeling the weight of my sin, I have to remember verses 1-5 through and say, every day is a day of great joy because yes, I do have an enemy. My enemy's been defeated. I may be losing a battle now, but the war is won. Years ago, I had a friend of mine named Doug Powell and he he wrote a song for this pop group that at the time was called Hanson. And they were doing a demo of the song. And so we went in to go see them record, record the song. And so we're sitting in there. And I think I've listened to the record. I don't know if I'm singing on it. I don't think I'm singing on it. But I know I'm clapping my hands on it. Because we all got around in a circle. And we, we all clapped around this microphone. And the hand claps are in. Some of the best hand clap work you probably ever heard on that song. I am clapping my hands on that song. But, but I remember we, we, when he was recording the song, we just all loved it. We said, once Hanson hears this, they are definitely going to want to put that on their Christmas record. So the agents had said, Hanson's about to record a Christmas record. Get us your songs in. And so they rushed to go record this song, and Doug was recording the song. And we were loving the song. And you know what the title of the song was? Every Day is Christmas. That was the title of the song. And, of course, it's about this guy saying, oh, I love this girl so much, and we're so in love that every day is like Christmas, and your presence is a gift, and all this stuff. But the, the title of the song is good, even if the verses were corny. For a Christian, every day is Christmas. 
Every day is Christmas. Every day should be a day of joy and happiness and victory and darkness to light and defeated enemies because every day for us really is Christmas. That's how the day of joy is described. Christ has come. And so every day we can walk in that joy of that great day which has been described. And then look at verses 6 and 7. The verses that Steve read for us are so awesome. Where the giver of joy is described. So verses 1 through 5, the day of joy described. Verses 6 and 7, the giver of joy is described. For to us, to us, we don't deserve it, but to us, a child is born. A son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord, the excitement of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a man on that television show Shark Tank. You know, they call him Mr. Wonderful. And that's funny that he calls himself that because he doesn't seem very wonderful to me. And when I think of wonderful, I don't think of a bald Canadian investor. But when Jesus is called wonderful, that is the right description. He is wonderful. His name is Wonderful Counselor. If you need to know something, if you want to go to somebody who will lead you in the right direction, you go to a counselor. Jesus is the Wonderful Counselor because He never leads you in the wrong way. He's called Mighty God. He's called Everlasting Father. Here's a prophecy about Jesus, and He is called Mighty God. The deity of Jesus is confirmed. If someone tells you Jesus is not God, that Jesus is a creature, you say, no, he's not a creature. Jesus is mighty God. He's not a creature. He's not created. He's the creator. And here he's called everlasting father. And that doesn't mean that Isaiah is saying Jesus is the same thing as the father, because we know that Jesus is a person, the son, the father is the, the father. But what he's saying is that Jesus, when you read this everlasting father, when you read it, what he's saying is Jesus loves like a father. How should a father love his children. He's called to shepherd them tenderly, to lead them, to protect them, to, to guide them. And here we are imperfect, and yet Jesus loves us like a father would love us. He leads us, he cares for us in the way a perfect father would. And then he's called the prince of peace, the ruler of peace. He's wonderful, he's mighty, he's everlasting, and he's the prince. And of the increase of his government, what is this talking about? He's ruling. He's a governor. He's sitting on a throne. There's no end to it. He's going to be a prince and a king forever. And he's going to sit on the throne of David and over David's kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. David was given a promise. David, on your throne, one day there's going to be a king sit here and he's going to rule forever. That's a promise God made to King David. One day on your throne, a king who will reign forever. How is that prophecy going to be fulfilled? One commentator says it this way. Against all hope. Because if you looked at everybody else that ever sat on David's throne, did they do a good job? No. <laughs> everybody was imperfect. And even if they were a good king, they died. They didn't rule on that throne forever because they died. 
But against all hope, even though we see our Savior on the cross, we see His body lifeless, and He's put into a tomb. Against all hope, what happens three days later? He walks out victorious. The conquering king, the king over sin and death, the ruler of all the universe. And what do we call Jesus? The son of David. He's in David's line. He comes from David's line of kings. And he's not just ruling over David's government, but he's ruling over the entire universe as the prince of peace. His government knows no end. It's established and it's upheld forever, from this time forth forevermore, with justice and with righteousness. So against all hope, how is this prophecy going to be fulfilled? There's only one way this prophecy to David will be fulfilled, is if God himself occupies the throne of David. And he represents his people, because that's what a king does. And he dies in their place for their sins, because that's how our king served us. And he wins our salvation, and that's what a champion does, is he wins. Only this Prince of Peace, only this King Jesus can provide lasting peace where you need it most. You need peace with God. You need forgiveness of your sins. You need eternal life. You need abundant life. Christian, every day is Christmas. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no day so dark, as we think about our application points of this text, There is no day so dark that you can't find the light of hope in Christ. When you're in one of those dark days, say, no, there's light here because I know God. There's peace here because I know the Prince of Peace. There's wonder here because I know the Wonderful Counselor. You see how it works. God will be faithful, as I told the kids, to every promise. Don't doubt this because you can't figure out how he's going to be faithful. You just believe that he is faithful. You can't see it, and maybe it's not going to happen in the way you would make it happen, but God will keep his promises, and God is always faithful. As I said at the beginning of the service, or the sermon, it's important to know how we got here. But it's also crucial to know where we are going. So we're reading about a day of peace that happened back here, and and so we would say that in some ways, the conquering and the war is over and, and, and the peace and the joy is here. It's already here, isn't it? But there's also a part of it that's not yet here. So where are we going? There's a day that the Bible describes when this will be fully realized. So we talk about the kingdom of God and we say it's already here, but it's also not yet fully here. But one day it will be fully here. Where The Lord of all will reign over all. Have you submitted to him? That would be my question for you if you're not a believer. What does a day of joy look like to you? For those of us who have trusted in Christ, the day of joy for us is knowing our Savior Jesus Christ. It's understanding that God has sent him to meet our greatest needs. But what does a day of joy look like to you who is a non-believer? What does victory over your enemies look like? What are your joys and your hopes and your dreams for a better day? What are they based on? Well, your joys and your hopes are based on the ups and downs of life. Your hope and security is here on earth. And it can be taken away from you, and it can be lost, and it can be threatened by circumstances. And you may be sitting here today, and peace seems like something you can't even fathom in your life. 
because you are not trusting the one who is called the Prince of Peace. You will not know peace until you know the Prince of Peace. There was an old bumper sticker used to say, no Jesus, no peace. And then it also said, but if you know Jesus, you'll know peace. They were kind of a play on words. Well, it's true, isn't it? If we want to know true peace, we need to know the Prince of Peace. And ultimately, that's how we got here today. Because a son was born all those years ago in Bethlehem. Because there was a new kid in town and some people said, well, I guess he's just another kid. Some people understood, this is the light we've been looking for. All of history had been working up to that moment that this one would come and he would reverse the curse of the garden and he would ascend to the throne of David and he would sit there and reign and rule, but that he would also sit on the throne of our lives. And this is our hope and this is our joy and this is the promise. Do you believe it? Let's pray.